everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I sit down with Kai Cunningham, one of the founding general partners at Limited Ventures. Limited Ventures is a fund created alongside titans of industry like the Forbes and Rockefeller families, traditional LPs, and numerous athletes. At Limited, Kai serves two critical roles. First, helping family foundations and institutions satisfy their diversity and inclusion mandates without sacrificing returns. And second, bridging the gap between the athletes and entertainers and the billionaire families of the world. He has helped over 100 athletes and entertainers participate in deals like Airbnb, SpaceX, Lime, Coinbase, Pinterest, Lyft, Dapper Labs, Zilch, Kraken, and more. Kai and I sit down for an awesome conversation today, one of the best I've had this year on the show. We dive into his wild journey from the DMV area to Goldman Sachs and Limited, his fund's investment mandate and thesis, the future of the athlete investor and why that's such a positive for culture, what fintech marketers need to know when working with celebs, the problems companies will face when deploying their DE&I funds, and a lot, lot more. I loved this conversation with Kai, and I'm really excited for all of you to tune in today. Let's get started. Hi, Kai, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It's fantastic to have you on the show as a guest today in the wake of a wild year in venture capital, investing, startups, tech, and more. Thanks for having me, man. I'm super excited. I know you had a you know one of my good friends, Brandon Copeland, on uh, one of the prior episodes. So shout out to Brandon. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And Brandon Copeland, I'll be sure to link the episode in the description and write up. He was fantastic. Penn professor and current NFL star just signed with the Atlanta Falcons, who is doing monumental work, you know, educating and empowering people all across the country with financial education. I'm a huge fan of what he's built, so be sure to check it out. So Kai, jumping to you, quite an interesting background to venture. I'd love if you could just talk, you know, to me as well as our audience about, you know, your background and journey to Goldman Sachs and then eventually your your role now at Limited Ventures. Yeah, for sure. So so for me, you know, I come from humble beginnings from Baltimore originally, grew up just like most kids coming from that environment, played basketball, football, ran track, did a little bit of baseball. And I was a decent athlete, but for me, I always tell people the best thing that happened to me was realizing that I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. And funny enough, it's funny how life comes full circle. I had actually gotten to a program at Wharton called the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. So there, my professors all worked with athletes or worked on Wall Street. So I knew going into college that I wanted to focus on business. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I did want to give myself the most optionality as I figured it out. So I started out on the trading floor at Goldman and simultaneously, you know, being from the DMV and going to Villanova, we won two championships in three years. I'm always going to shout out my Wildcats. You know, I had a normally large amount of friends that were starting to play professionally at the same time that I went to Wall Street. Right. So leading up to Wall Street, I was the guy who was always at, you know, the basketball games at all of the football games. 
But when I was interviewing, it was like always in the back of my mind, how am I going to merge the two, right? So when, when I was interviewing for Wall Street, as I'm sure you're familiar, they're super days, right? So like, oh yeah, I would be, <laughs> you know, taking 18 credits, running two clubs, but I was actually catching the bus from Philly to New York at like 1 a.m. because it was like five bucks, sleeping on my friend's floors and literally going up to Goldman, going to different banks and just interviewing on my own, right? Like pitching stocks to random people, getting, you know, into the elevators, eventually, you know, the Villanova network, we had had a direct pipeline and a connection. But what I did was I started building my own process, right? Because for me, it was always about how do I differentiate myself from, you know, the kids at Harvard and Wharton and Yale and Princeton with 4.0s. And the way that I did that was just building relationships with people, right? So what happened was I had expiring offers from other firms, but I set up probably 10 different shadow days on my own with Villanova alums and people that I had been introduced to. And what happened was that process substituted for what my Goldman Super Day would have been, I think, like the following February or March. So I had, you know, collected a database, had notes from every conversation that I had, and ended up connecting with over 60 or 65 people who all vouched for me. And that was just to get the internship. So then I got the internship. And I know on Wall Street, they like to tell this tale that, oh, sales and trading isn't as bad as banking in terms of hours. But in the internship, I was working banking hours. because I was doing everything humanly <laughs> possible to get a full-time job. And, you know, right. fortunately was able to make the cut, you know, and started my career out in New York. A couple things to respond there. I think any college student definitely empathizes with that journey. The crazy buses, plane rides, whatever you can take, scrap it together, sending thousands of cold emails to try and get that. Absolutely love the hustle. Have definitely spent my fair share of nights on friends' couches in New York. And then, yeah, I love that myth that, you know, sales and trading, they work, you know, market hours, nothing more. And then they go to their power dinners, et cetera. I was like, all the people right. that I know that did trading their first few years got smoked. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so exactly. true. And then, then to answer your part about, you know, the transition into venture, right? Like for me, because I had so many friends that were athletes and entertainers, I started to notice that you know, outside of the billionaires of the world and the top VCs, athletes and entertainers had exclusive access to deals, right? So I had a mentor who, instead of, you know, going to the beach for my vacations, I would literally go to his house or his office and just shadow on calls and listening to everything that he was saying. And he actually launched a fund with Nas, hip hop icon. They partnered with Andreessen. So for me, I started to form this thought process of how do I fully activate these relationships with, you know, with athletes and entertainers, right? So all of my friends who were looking to get into deals, what better way than to actually do the diligence and research for them on the weekends before and after work? And I started teaching them financial literacy. So those conversations went from what's a stock and what's a bond to how do we collectively invest into deals like Airbnb and Pinterest and Spotify and SpaceX and DocuSign, all of these deals. Fortunately, I had, you know, through my mentor, through just being in that environment, introductions, the Villanova network, I had, you know, connectivity. And I was pretty fearless in terms of just reaching out to people, you know, for access. And, you know, put yourselves in the shoes of a company. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I got 20 athletes that want to invest, you at least give them a look. So I started syndicating deals, investing my own capital with all of my friends into deals. 
And again, I realized that I could leverage their likeness and influence to get access to these deals. The challenge became a holistic approach, right? Because as you know, with most athletes and entertainers, often they're coming from humble beginnings and then, you know, given millions of dollars. It's like, how does this fit in with their overall plan and strategy? And how does it fit in with their overall asset allocation? So my thought process was to, you know, go to private wealth to where I had full visibility and then have this unique, you know, kind of connectivity to the venture space because I recognized, you know, athletes and entertainers wanting to have access to this deal flow. It was just a matter of creating or partnering with a platform that could provide that access while also giving them, you know, the right financial advice holistically as it fit into their picture. So for me, realizing that, you know, my time at Goldman, like Goldman may not have been the best kind of match for what I desired to do. I started my own family office, uh, always had a focus on venture. And then probably about six or seven months ago, you know, through one of my clients in the NBA, just got connected to the Forbes family, the Rockefeller family, um, and then the Costa family out of Brazil. And we decided to build a fund around this concept of bridging the gap between athletes and entertainers and the billionaire families of the world and how they invest, right? So at the core of the fund, you know, even though we have a lot of athletes, you know, most of the capital does come from other, you know, more traditional LPs, like endowments, other family offices, et cetera. But what we like to do is integrate the athletes and entertainers into our investment process, educate them along the way, and then help add and provide additional value to athletes. So for example, we help get them sweat equity and marketing deals in addition to giving them access to some of the portfolio companies that we invest in. Yeah, I love that, Kai. A lot to respond to. I think the most important thing is that anyone who's been watching the venture ecosystem over the last few years has seen you know, athletes, influencers, and musicians really on the path to monetizing their platform. And we're not talking about you know, just the classic you know, 10% referral code, social media promo here and there, though that helps. People, like you said, finally are getting sweat equity in these companies, being able to make decisions, put their own money in and back and support companies. It's huge. And, you know, for listeners that want to explore this space of individuals getting into the investing revolution, Ken Gwen, you know, CEO of Republic, Brianne Kimmel, who is an amazing tech operator turned solo capitalist, Michael Sidgmore of Broadhaven Ventures and others, you know, talk about this trend. So coming to Limited Ventures, Kai, you know, we all see the Kevin Durant, Steph Curry's, Chainsmokers, these huge iconic people, you know, J.J. Watt investing and getting into deals kind of as their own VCs. So how does Limited Ventures think about picking the athletes to partner with, you know, with their LPs and why is this so crucial? Yeah, you know, there are a ton of ways to answer this question. I think, you know, holistically, when we look at the landscape of and the trend of athletes investing, right, like the Steph Curry's, the LeBron James's of the world, the Kevin Durant's, you know, the one percent of the one percent of the one percent, they're always going to have access. Right. They can monetize, you know, like very few people on this planet can. They have teams, enough capital to have a full team dedicated to, you know, just looking at venture or just looking at real estate or, you know, what I mean, they have that flexibility and optionality. Where we look is, in addition to those guys, is the bottom 99% of the NBA, NFL, MLB, you know, NHL, even golf, you know what I mean? Because those guys, particularly in the NBA, they're still going to make 
10 to $20 million as, you know, the eighth or ninth man on the team, right? So it's about providing access to that guy because he may be LeBron James in his hometown to all the kids that look up to him. You know, I think socioeconomically right now, you know, we're in a very interesting time. So another theme of the fund and, you know, kind of what I'm personally passionate about is, you know, when I was growing up, I looked up to all of these athletes. So now I not only see LeBron James as a basketball player, but I see him as a venture capitalist, right? As a film producer, as an entrepreneur, as a real estate investor. So we can change the narrative of not just the top 1% of athletes and entertainers, but the entirety of the league that's going to trickle down to the kid growing up in the inner city of Baltimore or wherever that kid may be from to where he doesn't only see the options as playing basketball or making music. Now he sees an entrepreneur, right? Now he sees a business owner. Now he sees a real estate investor or a professor like Brandon, you know, playing in the NFL and, you know, teaching. So that's, you know, an underlying theme and how we think about it. And, you know, absolutely, I, I think one thing about venture is that for so long, it's been only accessible to, you know, a very small group of people. And now I think we're seeing it being democratized a little bit. So playing off of those themes, just educating a lot of athletes on what it is. Like I worked at Goldman Sachs, but I didn't even know what it was until I was 16 years old. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times it's just the access, the visibility and the education. And then again, if I see, you know, the player from my hometown that happens to play in the NBA, as a venture capitalist, that might spark the next mind or spark me to try to, you know, go down that path. So holistically, you know, we work with all sorts of athletes and entertainers and different types of investors, but have a personal kind of passion for, you know, helping out those guys who may not be LeBron James or Steph Curry, but right. are still, you know, going to be able to make an impact, you know, in terms of what they represent for the culture. Yeah, I absolutely love that. It's such a powerful concept. I mean, you see it everywhere. And I mean, even when I went to undergrad, I remember like my junior and senior year, people like, yeah, I got to do investment banking to get to private equity. And then I'm going to launch a hedge fund at 26. And I'm like, what is a hedge fund? Like, what are these guys talking about? Um, so I think that's so powerful. I mean, just to name for our audience, I mean, Jay-Z got named to the board of Square, which is as hmm. big as it gets. And Nas, you know, turned a 500K check into 100 million on Coinbase. So these are really just awesome success stories that everyone can see. So Kai, just going back to limited ventures, could you tell us a little bit more about kind of the strategy of the fund, you know, kind of the typical check size that you write and, you know, the style of investments that you're looking at? Yeah. I mean, I think the overall strategy for us is to find, you know, opportunistic deals, right? Like I think what's different about us than traditional venture firms is that, we don't want to make bets, right? We're ultimately in the risk mitigation game, right? We want to get into deals. You know, if we break it down into three buckets, early stage, growth stage, and late stage, I'd say on the earlier stage, you know, I'd probably say 10 to 20% of the portfolio will fall into that bucket. Those types of deals, we only want to cut a check if we see symbiotic value with our existing portfolio companies or if the partners in the fund believe as a collective that we can add a lot of value, right? So, so one of the companies we invested in is a company called Portal. So Portal allows someone to beam, you know, their full self in 4K, 3D, anywhere in the world. <laughs> so, so Diddy, hip hop icon, actually used Portal to beam into his son's birthday. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was all over the news. No way. I missed and that one. Reason why, the, the reason why we liked it is because, you know, Triller is a portfolio company for us, right? We were early investors in Triller. Triller bought Versus, right? So think about when 
everything goes back to normal, there'll be Triller and Versus presents Drake versus Lil Wayne or, you know, any artist versus another artist. But those are going to be real live concerts. What Portal allows us to do is potentially bring people back from the dead, right? So now think about how we can potentially do Michael Jackson versus Prince or Elvis versus the Beatles or Biggie versus Tupac, right? So the earlier we tilt in terms of the spectrum, we like to see what partnerships can we kind of activate day one. And that will kind of entice us to cut a check because I think, you know, what we want to do is change the narrative around VCs, right? Like we don't want to just be money. We want to be holistic partners in helping to grow the brand and the business. I think on the growth stage side, we like to, you know, hop on a moving train, if you will, right? Like we want to be in companies that are going to be successful with or without us, but provide access to our LPs where they may not otherwise have that access, right? So again, Triller being an example, Zilch, a fintech company out of the UK that's that's growing pretty well um, in the buy now and pay later space. And I think, again, on the late stage side, we want to look at companies that are expected to exit or IPO within the next six to 24 months and use our relationships to get on the cap table, right? So by the time the deal hits us, it's already a done deal. It's happening. And it's about what extra value can we add you know, to the company itself, as well as getting our investors exclusive direct access you know, mm-hmm. at a discount. So I think for us, the check sizes that we like to play in is typically half a million to five million because of when we're coming in, how we're investing and the overall value that we're adding. But because of the names, you know, in our partnership with Forbes and Rockefeller and the Costa family, we see deals pretty rapidly. So our investment timeline is typically a week to two weeks max because we're making opportunistic investments based on the top 20 VCs or the biggest families in the world already have, you know, executed the diligence and then just providing the opportunity to us because of our relationships and strategic value add. Yeah. Kai, that was fantastic. And just quick notes for our listeners, because I know they're not as well-versed in sometimes areas outside of FinTech. Triller is like a US TikTok kind of competitor, media company turning conglomerate that has 50 million plus users. It's an awesome company. And as Kai mentioned, Zilch is a great BNPL player out of the UK that just raised, I think, 80 million at a $500 million plus valuation. And the way Affirm and Klarna and some of these other players are going, I'm sure it's got great, great growth ahead. So one quick follow-up before jumping to kind of a new topic. How, you know, you have these unbelievable LPs and, you know, and the blessing of the Forbes, Rockefellers, and Costas. Mm-hmm. How are you thinking about you know, leveraging you know, them as expert networks and super connectors you know, in, in this world in your investing? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the overall theme of the fund, right? Like they provide so much value and in infrastructure is, you know, it's pretty ridiculous, right? I think, you know, on the Forbes side, right? Like that's, you know, Forbes tells the world who the billionaires are, who the best companies <laughs> are, who the best founders are. So it's, right. it's global connectivity, right? And it's something that's recognizable. The brand is, you know, it speaks for itself. Same with the Rockefeller family, right? Like they essentially, you know, built the country. They're the epitome of generational wealth. So when you think about taking those two families as well as, you know, the the network of athletes and entertainers, right? Now you have this ecosystem that just feeds off of each other. I think a big theme is that a lot of the billionaires of the world and the team owners and just, you know, wealthy individuals in general, 
they all love sports, right? Like they all want to be with the athletes and then the entertainers. And then you see people like LeBron. I know I keep, you know, shouting out LeBron. Clearly he's one of my favorite players, but you see LeBron changing the narrative of more than an athlete, right? So all of the players are now trying to be like businessmen and entrepreneurs. Unfortunately for the culture, but fortunately for me, it's like there are very few people who can can sit in between both of those two parties and essentially serve as a cultural translator, right? So as I think about the ecosystem and the network as a whole, you know, that's why financial literacy is at the core of the fund, because I can bridge the gap by educating the athletes on what it's like to place your capital next to the Forbes family or the Rockefeller family or this top VC. So that's how I think about them and and the value add. And I think secondarily, and perhaps more importantly, right, infrastructure, right? Like having the weight and the force and the credibility and the resources of these family offices behind me allows me to, you know, tackle a bigger problem going on right now, right? Which is this flow and access to capital. There's been over $35 billion committed or earmarked to diversity and inclusion, while less than 2% of that has actually been deployed. And the challenge is that, you know, it's finding... It's about being able to execute these mandates for diversity and inclusion without having to sacrifice returns, right? So so more so now, how I've been thinking about limited ventures and just growing the business is being the solution to all of these institutions that have these mandates, right? Because now I check all of the boxes for the infrastructure and can actually hold capital, but want to be the diversity and inclusion investment for these institutions and family foundations, endowments, et cetera, so that I can go execute my thesis as normal and then donate a percentage of the carry and a percentage of the profits to nonprofit organizations or other institutions or other founders who are looking to tackle this challenge. Whereas I feel like most of the industry is trying to tackle this problem by just throwing capital at Black founders or at women founders or at you know, the Latin community, et cetera, I think it needs to be twofold, right? It's like, how do we empower the entire ecosystem? How do we put capital in, you know, women fund managers or Latin fund managers or black fund managers who inherently have these deeper and more direct connections to the next, you know, big company from their community? So for me, it's about, you know, having that infrastructure, very fortunate to have those families kind of backing me because now it puts me in a position to be the solution to these bigger institutions looking to cut these bigger checks and satisfy their diversity and inclusion efforts. Yeah, agreed, Kai. And it's a tricky problem. You know, these well-intentioned companies have pledged tens of millions of dollars over the last year toward diversity and inclusion initiatives. But then, you know, you sign the pledge. What's really the best way to deploy this capital to make tangible impact? And, you know, corporations, investors, treasurers, corp dev heads aren't necessarily the right folks to make this decision. You know, it might be policy experts, urban planners, or someone else. And, you know, I think some companies like Square have been creative, right. allocating, I think, $25 million of cash to deposit at a Black-owned bank. You know, that concept is something Killer Mike talked a lot about, that banking Black is a direct impact. And, you know, I love the ideas that you just brought to the table. I think that's a really powerful way for corporations and our listeners on this podcast to think about this problem. Obviously, Harlem Capital is top of mind for everyone. They've gotten huge investments from companies like Apple and Jared, you know, one of the founders of the fund was just on the show last week. So switching to a relatively new topic, I'd like to dig into an investment from your fund. 
Could you just tell our audience about, you know, a deal in the fintech space that you've done in the last year or two from source to sign and what the process looks like? Yeah, I mean, one in the fintech space that I really love is probably one of the, you know, one of my favorite investments so far is Zilch that I mentioned earlier, right? Yeah. The company in the buy now pay later space based out of the UK, one of our partners was actually, you know, in the friends and family round. And as a result of that, you know, had pro rata rights to extend, you know, the raise to the fund. So Zilch growing 40% month over month, 18 months ahead of where a firm, which had a huge IPO and then Klarna in the space, clearly these guys are crushing it. Right. But based out of the UK and they're, you know, 18 months ahead of where they were at the current stage in the process. What I really like about Zilch is that their partnership is with the you know, the visas and the MasterCards of the world. So their customer acquisition costs is much lower and it's much easier for them to have those institutions on their platform, whereas other players in the space have to go out and individually get contracts, you know, with a Nike to be able to, you know, integrate their platform with that merchant. For us, it's again, it's about relationships, right? Like having those big names on our advisory board as general partners, you know, we have the benefit of seeing pretty much everything. We have the benefit of seeing the top deals, you know, across every industry, right? So in terms of diligence, of course, we have access to the data room, can dig in as much as possible. But for us, you know, it's about the relationships and the foresight of seeing the industry holistically, who are the industry leaders, who's already had success in the space, then coming in with the secondary layer of diligence and then cutting a check and providing that access to our LPs. The reason why I really love the fintech space is because, you know, for better or for worse, it's not something that, you know, immediately, you know, the athletes and entertainers who are my close friends may not see the value at first, right? Because I think naturally as a culture, you know, we're drawn to like the social media, you know, the Airbnb stuff that we use. But what I always educate athletes on, as well as our other LPs, is there's a company getting paid every time you open Instagram, (laughs) right? Like, that's the company you want to be investing in. So we (laughs) couple those fintech deals with the trillers, with the portals, with with those types of deals that at face value you may understand. But the back-end engine and the software and the technology associated with fintech is where the real money is made and what you want to be associated with, you know, going back to an earlier point, right, about financial literacy. These fintech companies are changing the way that we operate and think about day to day. And, you know, especially, you know, in the black community, it's huge thinking about financial literacy. So it's about understanding the engine behind all that stuff. And again, that's why I love working with the athletes and entertainers, because they can reach millions of kids on Instagram and partnering with these companies. And as I think about fintech companies, I haven't seen too many partner with athletes and entertainers in the same way that a Triller or, you know, Airbnb, probably not as much, but as a Triller or some of these other companies that are at the forefront have done, because I think it's hard for us to see that value immediately. But I actually think that that's a huge opportunity that's been a little bit untapped. Because as you think about the customers of these platforms, right, like the athletes from their respective hometowns, immediate access to millions of people who would probably otherwise not know about a company that spends a little, you know, very little on marketing. But that's the driving engine behind a lot of these transactions in your day to day life. 
Yeah, so true. And I think, you know, this has been covered on a lot of episodes that we've done. You know, the last 10 years was this big, you know, kind of D to C push in fintech. You know, the wealth fronts, the Betterments, the Acorns, all of these, you know, Robin Hood household names. But, you know, all the VCs that we talk to, what they're most excited about over the next 10 years are, you know, the picks and shovels businesses that are building for this gold rush of fintech and actually have incredible impact at scale. Because like you said, they're the ones that are powering all these amazing businesses. I, I mean, it's the cliche example, but you think about what Stripe did over the last, you know, five, 10 years, literally, you know, their mission of increasing the GDP of the internet mm-hmm. is completely true. And it came true. And the amount of entrepreneurs that they've empowered and businesses is incredible and so powerful at scale. But it's really not until the last year or two that I think, you know, everyday people had even heard what the hell Stripe was. <laughs> like, why would they think about a payments processor? Right. We, we love Stripe, by the way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's hopefully those types of companies will start to have, you know, the name brand value and the impact as some of the bigger IPOs that we've seen. And again, I think that's where the opportunity lies to partner with, you know, athletes and entertainers. Mm-hmm. So then last question before kind of closing out, you, you touched on this a couple times in the episode and then twice in these last two answers, is how fintechs can think about partnering with athletes, influencers, celebrities, and musicians moving forward. I think, you know, the the classic, you know, Shaquille O'Neal on like the Ben Gay commercial or whatever he did, Icy Hot, is kind of dead. That doesn't stick with a lot of people. They see right through the product placement. And, you know, I think of partnerships like the Challenger Bank Current has done with Mr. Beast, where it's such a native, you know, true partnership. Mr. Beast is embedded in that brand and giving away so much money to people. And he's just covered in current merchandise and marketing. And he's, it's at least looks very authentic on the surface. So for, you know, fintech marketers or founders that are listening to this podcast right now, if they're thinking about partnering with, you know, influencers of any kind moving forward, what are some things they should keep in mind? Yeah, I think you said the word a number of times, just partner, right? Like, how do you have a true partnership, right? And then I think the only way to do that is to be completely aligned, which is which is equity, right? So we, we talk about before, you know, having athletes, you know, getting them sweat equity deals. And it's actually a core piece of our theme because, one, it aligns you with the founder or the business owner in terms of vision and strategy, but two, if I'm an owner in something, I'm directly tied to how successful it'll be. And I'm then therefore incentivized to be a little bit more proactive. Right. So I think the days of, you know, not even just for fintech, but just where companies offering athletes yeah. cash for deals are over. Right. It's like, how do I become an owner? Right. So if I'm a fintech founder and I'm thinking about partnering with athletes. Right. And obviously it still has to make sense. I'm not saying give up 80 percent of your business you know, to an athlete because he has a million followers. But, you know, to the extent where it makes sense, giving them, you know, a sweat equity deal in the company so that visions are aligned, I think, you know, for athletes and entertainers, you know, in an environment where they're always being asked to do stuff, if you think about it now, it's like, I don't even have to be asked. This is a part of my brand. This is a part of who I am. Right. And if I own a piece of the company, I'm more incentivized to be proactive versus just doing this one time thing to where now it's just like, hey, I'm clearly just doing this for a check. It's like, how do I truly develop a partnership with this company? Because then we can win together, which is what sports is all about. Right. (laughs) 
I love that analogy at the end. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, like the DeAndre Hopkins quote comes to mind, like, I'm only chasing equity deals only from now on. Like, don't even bother me with anything else. It's so true. I mean, I remember, so I'm a huge Jets fan. I think I've mentioned that on a lot of podcasts. (laughs) You know, when Sam Darnold got drafted in 2017, I think it was, you know, I was so excited. And I was like, oh, he's going to bring so much fire to New York. We have a new franchise quarterback. And, you know, the business mind and, you know, in the back of me is thinking like, oh, I wonder how he's going to position himself, his brand. Gary Vaynerchuk was weighing in and was trying to get him signed to his agency. Mm-hmm. And then all I saw out of Darnold for the last three years was just Toyota commercials. And I was like, right, right. <laughs> it's, just, it's literally just him on Toyota commercials. I was like, this is such a waste of his amazing platform and talent. Obviously, it didn't work out that well for him. He's off to Carolina, but just the principle of it, I think, you know, that kind of partnership and not to rag on Sam, you know, there's a lot of athletes that do it this way. I just think that's going to be dying moving forward. And like you said, it's such a competitive advantage to actually have that partnership because these athletes are going to go on to have incredibly powerful networks and platforms, and they'll always have you in the back of their minds. Yeah. And just to add one more point about that, right? The the thing that I'm always conscious about, you know, specifically with athletes and entertainers is their brand and what they, you know, attach and tie their name to. So for me, that's why, again, having the Forbes and Rockefeller infrastructure is important because it's yeah. it's their brands that have already existed or they we already have a position in these companies, right? So we're already aligned. So it's it's that brand that we're tying to your brand, right? And the reason why, you know, people like we see it with Jay-Z and Nas and like, again, going back to the Steph Curry's and the Kevin Durant's of the world, right? We see them tying their brands to very specific things, but trust and believe they have a very wide portfolio of investments that they're making, right? So my thought process is why not take a portfolio approach, especially while you're playing, especially while your relevance is at a peak and your popularity is at a peak, and try to capture as many partnerships and equity deals and VC investments, you know, within reason, you know, as you can, because again, after a while, certain of the, you know, some of those investments, you may have that thousand X opportunity, right? You may have the situation with Nas and Coinbase or, you know, Jay-Z and Square where they have him on his board and, you know, you know, owning a piece of title and stuff like that. So I think in general, you know, operating like the billionaires of the world and the team owners where their mindset and thought process is, how do we think about our brand collectively in terms of capturing the industries and leveraging our likeness of who we are to get the best position. So yeah, I um, you know, we're we're eye to eye on that for sure. Yeah, and I just love that last point. Thinking like the owners of these teams. I mean, they're always putting brand first. They're always looking for equity. And I mean, there's just there just hasn't been that much opportunity for everyday people to think like that. It's it's great to see you know that companies and platforms and creator platforms are finally making that push. So Kai, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We got about eight to 10 questions for you, Max, like 10 second response each. Are you ready? Okay, it's like Family Feud. I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. First one, who is your investing hero? Robert F. Smith, for sure. I mean, I think I would say Roger, Robert F. Smith and then Reginald Lewis from Baltimore. First black billionaire. All right. Next one. What is your general personal portfolio allocation like stocks, bonds, crypto, venture? Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll need more than 10 seconds. And, you know, <laughs> this is a longer question that we should have talked about, about modern portfolio theory. And I remember yeah. I sat on the wealth management side. Um, for me, I'm overweight venture because it's it's what I do. And, you know, being a VC investor, 
I say traditionally, there should be, you know, lean on your financial advisor. Don't try to imitate my strategy, but I'm overweight venture across early stage, growth stage, and late stage and have a private diversified portfolio. All right, next one. What was kind of your I made it moment in venture? When did you know that this was going to start to work out? That's a tough one. I mean, every day, I mean, you know, humbly, I'm still, I still don't believe I've made it yet, which is you know, probably why I still work so hard. But um, I think it was, you know, and this is maybe sentimental, but my mom just saying, I'm proud of you, right? Like whatever I do, it's just, you know, mom kind of giving me that backing. But then yeah, directly answer the question, having those families kind of vouch for me and, you know, provide infrastructure for me is, was kind of my I made it moment. Yeah, I mean, anytime you have Forbes, Rockefeller, and Costa co-signing alongside, that's a pretty good moment. <laughs> All right, next one. NFTs, do you believe the hype? Oh, man. <laughs> See, you're asking all of these questions that should have been a part of the main thing. I definitely believe the hype. We only got 30 minutes. <laughs> I definitely believe in the hype, but I would just encourage people generally to bet on the industry, right? Just like with anything, there's always going to be a platform that warehouses all of these transactions that in, end up surviving. And that's how I think about just investing in general. I think, you know, NFTs are going to be around to stay. And obviously, it's, you know, the hot topic right now. All right. And then the last two, what is the unrealistic dream job for Kai? Unrealistic dream job is playing in the NBA. So <laughs> I still want to go to the league. You know, hopefully one day I'm a team owner. I'm going to be like Jackie Moon from Semi-Pro, owner, coach, <laughs> and player. That's the unrealistic dream job. Oh, love it. All right. Well, Kai, we can wrap up there. It was great having you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I want to thank you again for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Congrats on everything you built with the platform. And as always, if there's anything you need, anything I can help with, definitely let me know. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.